Um, so while the guys are going around, I want you to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Put a marker there. And then flip over to John chapter 3. Put a mark there. That little stringy thing in your Bible, that's what that can be used for. That works out really well. So if you didn't know what that was for, there it is. So John chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 3. And I'm going to see if I can't get this to work. Yes, there it goes. Technology is fantastic when it works. When, it's, when it doesn't work, it's just a reminder that we live in a fallen world. So, as I mentioned before, next week's my last weekend here, but the Eastman's will be ministering, and then right after that I'm going to be going on sabbatical. And um, I've been waiting to do one specific message until then. We've been walking through all this conversation in the book of Acts, and we've been talking a lot over the last few months about the importance of Scripture and scriptural authority and the centrality of the gospel message that should be in our lives. We've been, been spending a lot of time dealing with this. But one of the things that I haven't dealt with is what is the gospel message? We talk about false gospels. We talk about false teachers. And false gospels, if you're not familiar with what that term is, sometimes people will wrap false teacher with false gospel. They're two different things. A false teacher is someone who's trying to teach the Bible but eliminating specific parts. A false gospel is one that makes you feel good about yourself. You feel religious but doesn't change anything. It doesn't change the nature of your relationship to God. It has no restorative power. It makes you feel like you're welcome. You might even become a good person, but you're not right with God. That's a false gospel. There's one critical element in a false gospel that's missing. And that one critical element is the difference between a good person and a redeemed believer. Because there is, there is a difference. You can be a good person and not a redeemed believer. And being a redeemed believer doesn't necessarily mean you're a good person. <laughs> See, when it comes to God, when it comes to our relationship with God, there's this, this unfortunate truth that has been missing in a lot of our pulpits today. And that is that being good isn't enough. Hope you know that. Being good is not enough. Being good does not make you Christian. Being good does not make you godly. Have you ever heard anything like this either come out of your mouth or someone you know? Say, I don't need that, I don't need to believe in that God stuff because I'm a good person. I don't need that God stuff. I've never done anything wrong. Oh, you're Jesus. (laughs) That's good to know. It's good to know. How about this one? I'm just going to try to do the right thing. I'm going to do my best and God will take me as I am. Doesn't the Bible say we should come to him as we are? Yeah, but not stay that way. Could you imagine walking into the hospital? You know, you got your right arm and your left hand. You know, because you didn't follow the directions on the chainsaw. You know, it's just kind of one of those things. And you walk in. And the hospital will take you just as you are. Want to stay that way? (laughs) Because you're still broken. (laughs) No, the idea is to get back to what you should be. To make you whole again. 
So the question that we have in front of us today is, is really good. Is, is being a good person the goal of a Christian? Does someone who, want to, who wants to call themselves a Christian, is the goal that we become a good person? Now, it might surprise you that the answer I'm going to give you is no. That should not be our goal. Good is a very subjective term. The term good has no value unless you compare it against something that would be considered evil. And then you have to ask yourself, by what standard are you making that comparison? Who are you going to that is going to tell you the difference between good and evil? Between bad and acceptable? What is your absolute standard? What is your absolute authority? So let me ask you this. If you don't steal, does that make you a good person? Yeah. What about if you don't smoke or drink? Are you finally acceptable to God? Man, I could get right with God. I just got to figure out how to stop smoking. Well, let's leave the getting right with God out of it. And I have an idea for you. Want to quit smoking? Stop buying them. <laughs> it fixes itself immediately. If you don't have them, you can't do it. But smoking doesn't make you wrong with God either. I just want to point that out. How about this one? I've never killed anyone. Okay. Jesus says if you've thought about killing someone, then you're bad. And you're like, I don't want to answer that question. Do children count? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes, they do. Even if they're your neighbors. Okay. Just want to point it out. How about this one? I always go to church, I'm generous to others, and I always help old ladies cross the street. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't swear, I pay my taxes, I come to church, I do all the right things, I'm a good person, God will accept me just as I am. Okay. But is that really good to God? Or is that just being a good person? See, if the goal is being good, then we've got to decide as Christians whether or not we're going to let God define good or society define good. Our goal should not be to be good. Our goal should be to be godly. To be godly. Being good is easy. And honestly, for a Christian, in relationship to, to society, being good is a cop-out. Being good, according to society, will actually lead you away from God. Let me help you understand this. Anyone can choose to be good. A thief can choose to stop stealing. A liar can, stop, can choose to stop lying. And a drunk can choose to stop drinking. But the choice to be a better person does not make you right with God. And it will not save your soul. The difference between a good person and a godly person is the source of our standard. And the source of our standard, if our goal is to be godly, there is only one place we can go to find the answer to what does it mean to be godly. And here's a hint, it's not the church. Just being here is not going to help you. At best, I'm a guide. It's up to you to dig into the manual of what it means to be godly. If the only time you have your Bible in your hand is when you're Coming to church, 
or spanking a child. Okay. Just wanted to see who was like, he knows. (laughs) If those are the only times your Bible's in your hand, your faith is woefully inadequate. Woefully inadequate. Scripture tells us to whom much is given, much is required. And we have the full word of God. I don't think standing before God saying, gee, I didn't read that part. After living 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, I don't think God's going to say, well, you probably just didn't have time. To be a good person, if you think about this, in the eyes of society, all I have to do is align my beliefs with whatever society says. And then pow, I'm a good person. All I have to do is disconnect myself from everything that God wants and embrace everything society says, even though it changes constantly. All I have to do is agree with the masses and suddenly I'm good, according to them. If society tells me that, well, if I say that boys can't be girls and girls can't be boys, then I'm a hateful person, according to society. So in order to be good for society, all I have to do is throw away thousands of years of biological understanding and everything that we know about science and anatomy and say, sure, you can be whatever you want. See, all I have to do is that and poof, presto changeo, I'm one of the good ones. Especially if I'm a Christian willing to say that. All I've got to do is let go of what the Bible says, and boom, I'm a good person. If society tells me that traditional marriage, meaning one man and one woman, is discriminatory, or that an unborn child is not a life, or that all people of a certain pigmentation are inherently racist, not only that, so racist they don't even understand how racist they are, they need to be trained how racist they are. All I have to do is agree with anything that the masses say, and boom, I'm a good person. But you see, that's not godly. That doesn't make me right with God. Being right with God almost always is going to put me at odds with society. If I search the Holy Scriptures... It's going to become very clear to me that I'm going to have a hard time being good in the eyes of society. Let me help you out with this. When the world says that boys can be girls and girls can be boys, we say male and female, he created them. Genesis 5, 2. When the world says traditional marriage is discriminatory, we say for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united with his wife. Genesis 2.24. When the world says an unborn child is not a life, we say, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, Jeremiah 1.5. When the world tries to divide us up by race, income, or political party, we say there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28. The world wants us to deny the very thing that God has placed in front of us as the sole guide to our life. 
his word. To get us to deny his word. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. That phrase right there, by the mercies of God. If you read back through the early chapters, Paul expounds on what God has done through the, through the Israeli nation and through, and through Christ. He's talking about the salvation of man. He says, because of the mercies of God, you present yourselves, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God which is your reasonable service. He's saying, I'm not asking a lot. This should be, this should be a no-brainer for us. He says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but being transformed is kind of like a butterfly. You go in one thing, you come out something completely different. But being conformed, it's like taking Play-Doh and pushing it into a mold. You have to force it in to take a predetermined shape to make it look like you want. So when we are conformed to the world, what we are doing is we are yielding to the outside pressure of the world to fit a picture that they have pre-described for us. So a good person is going to look like this. And we're pressured and we're squeezed and we're pushed into this mold. But scripture tells us, don't allow the pressure to turn you into what they want you to be. Allow the truth of the will of God to make in you something even more amazing. Striving to be godly doesn't mean that the world is going to see us as good. It's going to put us at odds with the world. And that creates a problem because we're humans and we have tempers. But scripture also gives us the answer to that. How are we supposed to deal with a world that beats us down and beats us down and beats us down? Do we have the right to be religious jerks? Or how about this one? Pious snobs. No, we don't. First Peter 3, 14 through 17 says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, but with meekness and in fear. Having a good conscience that they may defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. They may talk badly about you, but your life will show something different. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. We should expect to suffer for doing evil. How many of you have ever been pulled over by a police officer? Stop. Every hand in here that drives has been pulled over. And if you haven't, I'm, I'm taking notes. Jay will take care of it later. <laughs> when you get pulled over and you are already rehearsing the lie that you're going to tell the officer, do you know why you were pulled over? Of course you know why you were pulled over. No, officer, I didn't know my headlight was out. Yes, you did. No, officer, I didn't know that I was doing 85 in a school zone. 
Yes, you did. You know exactly why you were pulled over. You should expect to get in trouble for doing bad things. I was coming back home from dropping Samantha off or doing something at, at Samantha's work in Carthage. And that little hill coming out of Low Finks, you kind of pop over. I had the green light. Popped over the hill. So I, was, I was going too fast. And I talk about obeying the speed limit all the time. As soon as I came up over the hill, my eye glanced down at the speedometer. And I was like, oh, here we go. Because as, my, as I came over the hill, I see lights and the guy sitting right there. Like, here, here it is. I'm going to get a speeding ticket and it's going to become a sermon illustration because it's funny. <laughs> I drove down. I slowed down. I wasn't like trying to pull into a, pull into, pull into Walgreens. Hopefully he drives by. And I'm not, I wasn't there. I pulled, I pulled right over, just stopped and kind of waited. Officer comes over, he comes up to the car. Pull my window, put my window down. Do you know why I pulled you over? Yes, I did, officer. I came over that hill way too fast. Like, I don't know if he was new, but he was not prepared for that. He goes, actually, yeah, that's, that's exactly why I pulled you over. I even told him how fast I was going. He's like, yeah, yeah, that, that's how fast you were going. I'm like, I'm ready. I'm, I'm expecting to get a ticket. He goes, I'll be, I'll, I'll be right back. He, he starts walking away. You can tell he's kind of like, I'm not exactly sure what to do here. He walks back. In like eight seconds, a car goes by. He comes back over, hands me my, my license and registration. And he says, thank you for your honesty. That guy's not wearing a seatbelt. <laughs> and, and boom, and I'm thinking, oh, the humor of God. <laughs> it's just awesome. I'm wondering if that guy got pulled over. Yes, officer, I wasn't wearing a seatbelt. What he would do? <laughs> thank you for your honesty. Here's a ticket, you know. Uh, it's, it's, we should expect to get in trouble for doing bad things. But as Christians, we should also expect to be persecuted for doing the godly thing. When we do the godly thing, we should expect to get persecuted to some degree. It's just natural. Even the people who are, who are, who you work with, when they ask you things like, hey, you want to go hang out with the bar after, after work? It's been a rough shift. What's the godly thing? Well, maybe I can minister to them at the bar. Let me, let me help you out with something. No, you can't. You, you follow your, your, your coworkers to the bar. You've got about 8.5 seconds of them being lucid enough to understand what you're saying. They may end up at the end of the night crying their eyes out at the bar, giving their lives to Jesus, and wake up in the morning and not even remember it happened. I've known those people, Okay. I ran restaurants for a lot of time, for a lot of years. I've seen a lot of bars. You're not ministering to anyone at a bar. It's that simple. You're simply legitimizing that activity in the eyes of being a Christian. Of course, I can go out drinking. He's a Christian. He does it. See the difference? There's good. There's godly. Godly sets a different example. Godly says, nope, sorry, guys. I got to head back to my hotel room and get a, get some sleep. There's a difference. There's a clear difference. And we don't do this because we think we're better. We do this because we know we're not. We do this because of what Christ has done for us. We do this because of the gospel message. And the gospel message is far more than just Christ and him crucified. The gospel, if the gospel is not being, not just about being good, then what is it about? The thing about your Bible is in order to understand the gospel of Christ, you have to start all the way back in Genesis. 
I'm going to walk you through a couple of pieces. I want to help you understand what the gospel really is. What is the good news? If you go all the way back to Genesis 1, don't, don't turn your Bible. Stay in that, that, those two same spots we were just at. If you go all the way back to Genesis 1, verse 31, it says this. And God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. What God made in the beginning was very good. And then there was us. Now, the world was very good to God's standards, not to man's standards, meaning there was no sin in the world. There was no sin in the world. God would actually come out of heaven and walk side by side with man, with mankind in the garden. He walked with us physically because there was no sin in the world. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, he says, And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. God physically, in our creation, and I believe this is a literal, literal account of what happened, God created us, and he breathed into us, into humanity, a living portion of his spirit, which is what sets apart humanity from all other life. Now, when I do creation conferences, I get challenged on this all the time. You can't be serious, Pastor, that God actually put a small piece of himself in us. That's just silly. Because we're born sinners, right? So if we have some of God in us, how can we born, be, be born sinners? Well, I'm going to help you understand why we're born sinners. I'm going to help you understand why Jesus came and what he actually was supposed, what, what he did. And I'm going to do it using their words. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we find out how sin entered the world. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said that you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? I want you to think about something. The very thing that caused mankind to fall away from God was a test of whether or not, please listen, God's word meant what it said. The very first challenge to mankind was whether or not God meant what he said. It was the challenge of his word. Isn't that funny? That's still a challenge that's going on today. The devil doesn't have any new tricks. We just keep falling for the same one over and over and over again. Now, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, in the middle of the garden, God said, You shall not eat of it or touch it lest you die. God said, if you eat it, you'll die. So then the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she also gave it to her husband with her and he ate. People talk about how Eve let sin into the world. Adam was standing right next to her and did nothing. Now, I find it very interesting that the temptation that he gave to humanity was something humanity would have gotten all by itself. It was just patient. This fruit is good to make you wise. You will know good and evil. You know, life will do that for you too. Experience will do that for you. So the devil tempts us to deny God's word, and what he offers us is something God was going to give us anyway. Talk about dense. How often do we fall into traps 
thinking we're going to get something that if we had just waited would have been ours to begin with. And it wouldn't have separated us from God. But it did. But here's the thing. Two things happened on that day that we need to know. On that day, sin entered the world because humanity denied the word of God. The, word was not, the world was not very good any longer. And the second thing we need to know is that something in mankind died. Something in us died. God said, if you eat of this, you will die. Something in us died. Adam and Eve were still alive, right? So what is it that died in them? What died in them was the Spirit of God placed in them that separated us from all other life on earth. That's what died. This is where I tend to get challenged when I, when I go to creation conferences because they say, you're crazy. That's just, you can't even prove that with Scripture, really. Open up to John chapter 3. And I want to show you why Jesus, the good news is that Jesus came to balance the scales. What was taken away in the garden in the beginning will be restored on the cross the end. This is the words of Christ himself. I apologize, this is a little bit longer. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This was a smart man. This man came to Jesus by night because he didn't want other people to see him there. And he said, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know you are a teacher come from God for no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. Then Jesus answered him and said, most assuredly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus went, what? Nicodemus said to him, how? How can a man be born again when he's old? What, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? That's just weird. Jesus answered and said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit. Water is a natural birth. But the spiritual birth is nothing we can control on our own. It has to be done supernaturally by an outside force. We cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. This body is going to die. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. The spirit doesn't die. Do not marvel that I say to you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. It is not something you can see. It's not a physical manifestation. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Listen to what Jesus says. This is so amazing. Jesus answered to him and said, you are a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things. Basically, he's saying it's in the first part of the book. How can you not know? After all of the history of God's interaction with this nation, what the plan is. There was only one mistake made all in the beginning, and God has been trying to repair that mistake the entire time. How do you, an expert in my word, not know what is about to happen? That's how obvious this should be. And if you read the scriptures, it becomes very obvious what's about to happen. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak that we know, uh, um, we, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I, if I told you of earth, earthly things and you do, do not believe me, how will you believe me if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. By the way, stop right there. You hear a lot of modern-day prophets talk about going up into heaven. 
taking little trips to heaven? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came from heaven. Just want to point that out. When you hear someone talking about that, saying things like that, please understand they're lying. They're lying. There's no truth to it. No one has ascended to heaven. That was a side note. Moving right along. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Listen to this. But he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in him is condemned already. Why are they condemned already? Because they don't have the spirit of the living God inside them. That's why. They're separated from God. They're already condemned. Because he has not believed in the name of the Holy One, the only begotten Son of God. Jesus says we need to be born again. What needs to be reborn? The spirit within. So the spirit that is dead in us, which died all the way back in Genesis, has to be reborn That spirit is what connects us to God in a way that people who are simply religious and trying to be good will never understand. They will never understand this. I want you to think about this. When you become born again, the scriptures begin to make sense. It opens your eyes to things that you've never understood before. Prayer all of a sudden goes from a chore to something intimate. Worship opens up like you've never seen it before. I have seen people who have spent their life in church and have never been saved. Suddenly they get saved and everything they thought they knew, they realize they didn't. And understanding explodes in their mind. Why? Because now they're connected to God in a way they were not connected to God before. Something has opened up in them. The spirit that was dead within them is now alive. They are made alive in Christ. How do we do this? How do we access this? How do we balance the scales in this way? Sin ruled mankind for so long. How do we undo what was done? God gave us the law of sin and redemption to the nation of Israel to help bridge the gap of understanding and to help, and to help teach us the cost of sin. The law was not there to be the cure. The law was there to help us understand what the cure was going to be. It opened our eyes. So now we understand that to live a sinless life, something must die a sinless death. The debt of sin must be paid by one who has no sin. For us to be forgiven, another must pay the price. For us to live forever, another must die. That's at the heart of the gospel. That's at the core of the gospel. To pay for the sin of man, an innocent must be laid down. That's why it was a lamb. No more than a year old, not a mark on it. It had never done anything. It was perfect. But it was killed to cover our guilt. Jesus became that lamb, willingly. At the appointed time, according to Scripture, at the appointed place, according to Scripture, and in the appointed manner, according to Scripture. Christ stepped out of eternity and walked the earth as a man to live a sinless life and to die a sinless death. He became that innocent life that paid for all of us. He became the door through which the Spirit of God would be reborn in the life of man. 
He opened the door that anyone can walk through and receive the gift that he brought. So how do we receive the gift? If the good news is the door is open, how do we walk through the door? How do we get a hold of this gift? This one thing that I want to share with you today, this one thing that you see false teachers and false gospels, you never hear it in their pulpits. You never hear it in their messages. And it's one simple word. I'm going to read you some scriptures, and hopefully we can discern what this word is. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Luke 13, 3. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Mark 1, 14 through 16. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Luke 5, 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Acts three nineteen. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Anyone figured out what that word is yet? Repent. Please hear this. It is not simply believe. It is not simply believe. Believe that Christ died on the cross. I want you to understand the devil believes Christ died on the cross. I know a lot of drunks and alcoholics and people who were, are not, go, not on their way to heaven right now. They believe Jesus died on the cross. They don't doubt the Bible, but they're missing one very specific thing. There is no repentance in their life. What does it mean to repent? Does it mean to tell God you're sorry? If you walk into the kitchen, you see your kid's hand elbow deep into the cookie jar. And they pull it out real fast and say, sorry, 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 sorry. Has your kid repented? Not if they do it again. Repentance is not sorrow. Repentance is not being sorry. We hear people preaching about the goodness of God. Preaching about helping your fellow man. These are all good things. Preaching about find your best life now. Preaching about... putting forward the things that matter. The good news of the gospel is not that Jesus is going to make you a good person. The good news is that the sin that separates you from God can be forgiven. The very thing that separates man from God can be forgiven and the spirit that was, that was taken from us in sin can be reborn in the life of the individual. That's the gospel message. It can happen. The door to that is repentance. But in order to repent, you have to believe a few things. You have to first believe that there is only one standard, and that standard is God. See, if you repent to man, you're repenting according to their standards. To repent to God means that you believe inside you are not right with God. You are not living according to his Word. You are not living according to his standards. This is why I get so animated when I hear people say, you don't need the Bible, you just need you and Jesus. You and Jesus is a train wreck, and only Jesus will survive. It's scripture. That's where the only place where we find truth. 
So in order to repent, we have to believe that we are not living up to this and that we will be judged according to this. That when we stand before God, he is going to go through what he has already told us is right and wrong. And we have two choices to work our lives out to fill his purposes or to be good according to society. I think we should strive to be godly. The only way you're going to know you're right with God is by admitting that he is the ultimate standard and also understanding that you're not living according to that ultimate standard. We cannot do it on our own. He is the one who will judge us in the end and that is him and only him. I hope you hear this. It is God and only God that gets to decide what is good and what is not, what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is a lie. It is God and only God. It is not man, it is not society, it's not, their, your, it's not your political party. It doesn't make any difference if something is legal. If it's not godly, it's not, a, it's not godly. It doesn't matter. I have heard more Christians talking about how excited they are that pot is going to become, is going to be, you know, recreational use. Are you kidding me? It doesn't make, it doesn't, it's not godly. It separates you from God. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's good. During World War II, it was legal to kill Jews. It didn't make it right. I'm going to take a sip of this and calm down. Sin is what has separated us from God. And Jesus stepped in and paid that price, paid the price for our sin, so that the Spirit of the living God could be made alive in us. But we have to make a choice to repent and believe or to just simply believe and hope it'll work itself out. I don't recommend the second. Romans 10.8 says, But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. It's the scriptures, if you're wondering what that is. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the ultimate standard... And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, meaning every claim that the Bible has made about Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his standards for life are true. Then you will be saved. For with your heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Meaning you've got to believe on the inside and live it on the outside. That's what that means. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. The gospel is not about making you into a good person. The gospel is about bringing the lost to repentance. Repentance, it leads to forgiveness and salvation. For some of us here today, you may believe with all your heart, but you're struggling with repentance. And by the way, repentance is not something you do once. Repentance is something that's going to become a habit in your life. Because as God peels back the layers of sin in your life, new layers are going to be exposed. And we have to deal with those. 
every single time, every day, every challenge. Scripture says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Let me break that down for you real quick, then I'm going to pray for us and we'll be done. To work out your salvation means that you understand that it's not finished. That you have issues that you need to work through. And by working through that, you believe that it's the standards of God by which you need to change your life. And you believe the fear and trembling part is knowing that God is not kidding. He's not trying to make light of it. This isn't something that might happen or maybe maybe God will change his mind when he, get, when he gets to the end. But I'm sorry. The Lord has said in his own word, I am the Lord. I do not change. So what was right today is still right today. Uh, what was right tomorrow or yesterday is still right today. What was wrong is still wrong. So we work out our salvation with fear and trembling by comparing our life to the scriptures. And when they're out of alignment, guess which one changes? Our life. Makes no difference how much you like it, how much society says it's okay. It doesn't matter. If you're out of step with God, you're out of step with God. Repent and believe. Move your life and put it in line with his. Some of you today here are struggling with that. And you know you are. I can't fix that for you. You're going to have to do it yourself. That's between you and God.